biggest deal in Australian radio history. Can Kyle and Jackie O pull off a $200 million contract? And what's this mean for the broader radio industry? Also today, YouTube has held its upfront and TikTok had its For You Summit. We look at what these video giants are doing in the market right now. And advertising businesses who work with fossil fuel companies are being called out as pressure mounts on businesses and employees to align their client base with their ethics. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast, a discussion of everything under Australia's media and marketing umbrella. I'm Michael Thompson, and I'm joined every week by my colleague, Adam Lang. Adam, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. Now, let's jump straight into it because the lead story, the main story today is just extraordinary. It's the story, basically the whole industry and beyond the industry. It's the story that everyone's talking about. Kyle and Jackie O, Adam, the hosts of the breakfast show on Sydney's KISS FM are deep in contract negotiations right now. And and look, you might think that it sounds a little premature because their existing deal doesn't actually finish until the end of next year, until the end of 2024. But we're expecting to hear an announcement very soon. And this announcement, based on what everyone says, is potentially massive, massive. The figures reported across the last week, uh, they would be looking at a $200 million deal over 10 years. So that's $10 million per year each. Now, at the moment, Kyle and Jackie O are believed uh, to be on around $5 million each per year, making them already the highest paid personalities in Australian media. This new deal would just put them into a whole nother level altogether. A little bit of background to this, Adam, because I think it probably explains why we are now talking about this and why there is so much tension and so much competition over this duo in particular. In 2014, they jumped ship from Southern Cross Stereos to Day FM to ARN, uh, and in doing so, launched the new KISS station in Sydney, which replaced Mix. And in doing so, they did something that's really quite spectacular and quite uncommon in the industry. They succeeded in taking their audience with them. And I think the last time we saw that happen, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, was when Alan Jones moved from 2UE to 2GB quite a few years ago now. Yeah, Michael, 2002, 21 years ago. Uh, It's quite extraordinary. And you can count on kind of one hand the number of times this has happened within the industry that presenters have moved and have succeeded in taking all of their audience basically with them. And Kyle and Jackie O went from number one FM on Today to number one FM on KISS. And Nathan Jolly has gone through all of this on mumbrella.com.au. It is, as I said, an amazing story. And since then, uh, SCA's Today FM has been, I suppose you would say, in the doldrums because Kyle and Jackie O have been rating up to a 17, slightly over a 17 share in breakfast, while their old slot is kind of hanging around a four-ish. So, I mean, it, it, it just shows how many people followed them across the new station. So it it gives you a little bit of a taste of the competitive tension here. ARN desperately wants to keep them. SCA apparently wants to lure them back and you you can't blame them for wanting to do that. Now, Adam, full disclosure, Mm -hmm. during your career, you've done a lot of things and and I, I mentioned this and every time I say that, it sounds like an insult. I've had a few years at the crease, Michael. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. And uh, during that time, you've kind of worked in music and TV and you were the CEO of an ASX-listed media company. 
And during your time in radio, you have worked with plenty of different radio presenters. And in a previous role, you were actually working at Southern Cross Hall Stereo when Kyle and Jackie O were there. What was that like? What was it like seeing that machine, because that show is a, is a machine, up close? Uh, it was incredible and very, very memorable. And I think, you know, through all those different aspects of my career, whether it's music, TV or radio, or even now in podcasting, Michael, I know uh, through experience that stars are rare and precious. So when you get them, mm. you must do everything you can to support them and hold on to them. And so it was a bit like, I don't know if you've ever been to a Formula One, Michael, but there's pit lane on the side. Mm. And when you go to the track, there's this roar of the engine and the crowd, the anticipation builds. And it's a bit like that when Kyle and Jackie O walked into Southern Cross Stereo and the show was about to begin. There's anticipation, a bit of competitive tension, uh, but you always knew that it was on. And that's, I think, probably one of the secrets of their success is that they retain an X factor. And so it was really uh, a memorable time in my career working with them. And it's quite stunning to see how they've kept it going. I can I just say, the thing about, about Kyle right, is is that there seems to be a lot of people that kind of almost sneer when they talk about this, about that program, about Kyle and Jackie O, and, and it always comes with a little bit of a, oh, I'd never listen to that. Um, and and to me, it, it, it smacks of, of an elitism that exists right throughout the media. And, and it exists because you, because you listen to commercial radio instead of the ABC, that therefore that is a lesser form of radio. It's because because you read the Herald Sun or the Daily Telegraph or the Courier Mail instead of... Like how worthy is it? In, indeed, instead of reading the Sydney Morning Herald or The Age, that it is therefore a lesser form of newspaper, a lesser form of kind of media that you can... Even books, actually. Even like if you're not reading kind of Dickens and Bronte and Austen, you're choosing to read kind of commercial fiction, Colleen Hoover or John Grisham or something, that, that it's a lesser form of media consumption. I think at the end, at the end of the day... Kyle Sanderlands is one of the most talented broadcasters that this country has ever produced. Oh, it's so true, and so is Jackie. Yeah, you know they are a team, an incredibly high-performing team. Yeah, you, that's actually, and and I should not neglect Jackie in this because the two of them, they have that unique chemistry on air that makes that show just work so well. And for me, the the X factor that you talk about, I think, is and I've mentioned this to you before, that, that it's kind of that element of unpredictability about the show. And it's the same thing that I would argue that Ray Hadley has, the same thing that Alan Jones had in his heyday when he was uh, on commercial radio. And it's this element of you never quite know what's going to happen with the show that that, that Kyle, for instance, can talk to five listeners in a row and the first four are, are his best mates. And then the fifth one says something stupid and they're being branded a flog. And you you just you never quite know when that's going to happen. You, you never know what's going to come out of his mouth. And for that reason, you just keep listening. And I think that Kyle and Jackie O have proven their value. As we said before, they took their audience with them. They they took them to number one FM in their first survey at Kiss. They've established that commercial value even with the element of brand risk that goes. So how important then would that show be to ARN to retain it and how important would it be to SCA to try and lure them across? 
Oh, it's vital, Michael. Uh, the competitive landscape changes depending on who gets them. And I would say that there are similar examples around the country, metropolitan and regional, uh, that are high stakes games. But rarely, and usually it's in Sydney and Melbourne because of the nature of our population distribution in Australia, that those competitive markets of Sydney and Melbourne are usually the highest stakes games and they are critical. It's critical to generate audience because they also can have, beyond the cities, they can have metropolitan application, they can be networked, but also for advertising buyers. So, you know, when you are looking at the volume of spending coming out of each market, Sydney and Melbourne are the strongest and those accounts typically uh, really are buying nationally. They are looking at their local example, what they live with in their city, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth, etc., and then they buy nationally with an influence from that. So it's critical for an audience, it's critical for advertisers, and then you can imagine what it's like to work with a winning team when you're on that team or against one. It, it impacts staff as well. So really it's vital for audience, it's vital for advertisers, and it is vital for staff. Okay. Uh, how then do we get to this point of, of a figure like $200 million being tossed around? Because that sounds like a lot. And it is a lot. It is a phenomenal amount of money. But uh, I suppose we're not just talking about audio here. We're not just talking about one show every weekday morning during breakfast. There are models kind of internationally here as well that show how content uh, can be used across different platforms, including video and delivering a lot more value and in doing so justifying paying what is a very, very high sum for one duo. Yeah, I think, Michael, since the last time they did a big deal to move to ARN, probably two substantive things have changed. The power of digitalization and first-party data and also video. So those things are different now than they were nine-odd years ago when they moved. So back then, as they do now, they have the hour of power. So their show, a highlights package of one hour is played in the evenings across the country. So that that is indeed beyond just the city of origin. So they've got a national show now. They haven't got a national live breakfast show. And ARN and SCA both might be looking at how they can do that maybe on FM, which would be very interesting, or on DAB Plus as well as online. So that's another aspect. And again, you can picture the table stakes of video and audio is, is how that will likely look. The other one is there are some other arrangements that might come into play here, depending on who owns what and what company has their services. So let's just say you were signed to Nine and Nine Radio. Nine's got digital TV channels and the radio stations. They could put their breakfast shows from radio on digital TV, right? So what might happen then with a Kyle and Jackie O and ARN's relationship with television distribution or just is it going to stay online or they do a deal with 7, 9 or 10? So, look, there's a lot of permutations around how this brand might sound and look in a new deal. Okay. And I also talked then about the, the kind of competitive tension here between ARN and SCA. Yeah. And they are really the two big players that are arguably kind of tussling over Kyle and Jackie O at the moment. But what about kind of third parties that, that might just appear out of nowhere here, like <laughs> Nova, uh, for instance, or you look at, at say, say Spotify, for instance, they did a, an enormous deal uh, with Joe Rogan in the US. 
what role could we see a, a third party potentially playing in this? Look, absolutely we could. I think, and this isn't a spoiler alert nor any knowledge that I have, but the fact that the negotiations are so early, uh, to your point, Michael, we're talking at the tail end of 23 about a deal that goes on to the end of 24. Imagine if they did a deal with SCA and announced it this year. They got 12 months plus of working it out with their current employer. <laughs> that would be a fascinating dynamic, oh, right? That's got a TV show in it, hasn't it? That's got a reality <laughs> TV show. Itself. Feels like the unwelcome house guests. Don't rule it out. Mm. So, uh, you know, that it does speak to the fact that there's a strong contender in ARN. But let's look beyond that. SCA is an obvious one. They've been there. They've got a huge number of stations across the country, metropolitan and regional, around 100 stations. So the distribution footprint that they have is enormous. Nova absolutely could be a deal and or others, including, as you say, Amazon Prime. What if they want to make this a TV show through their services? Spotify, as you mentioned, it, it, they are all possible. But you think that the ones that need them most are the ones that have both had them. And I think that's going to play into this deal. In the end, it's like selling a house, only worth what someone is willing to pay, Sure, right? Or they could stop, right? That's true. Kyle and Jackie O could decide, no, nah, it's not worth it. I, I don't think that'll happen. Their commercial value is so high, that would be illogical, right? But the fact that I also think that they both really enjoy what they do and clearly they're exceptional at it. So- I was going to ask you that because... Because you have worked with them up close, they both have an extraordinary passion for radio, don't they? No, they virtually live it. Like they, and I think to get mastery in a craft, right? You you have to do more than most to to attain that level of performance, and they both do. Yeah, uh, equity. I mean, two hundred million dollars is a lot to uh, to kind of come up with. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I say that so flippantly because I don't need to be finding $200 million anytime soon. Uh, mm. But, uh, I mean, equity, one would assume, would potentially play a, a part in any deal structure. Well, I don't know about presumably. I think it's logical, but maybe not everyone sees it that way. I think it's really good to align everybody in a business with the performance of the whole business, right? Your role is not just about an, an individual role and your salary. It is also about how you perform with all of the members of your team. And so I think it's really logical and it, it is a great mechanic to align the interest of anyone with the business is to give them part of that. Now, in Kyle and Jackie O's case, they are not your average employee, right? And so I think uh, the discussion of equity in this deal makes a lot of sense. I mentioned before, Adam, the commercial demand is is there for this show. Clearly, there is. But but brand risk, where does mm. that come into it? Because Kyle has said some very controversial things and they, they have done some very damaging things uh, on that show in the past. So uh, some companies would be wary. But clearly, uh, there are companies that believe that they are still able to work with Kyle and Jackie O, and, and particularly when uh, there is certain protections now in place as a result of, of new ACMA conditions. Yeah, that, that's right. I think also too, as Kyle and Jackie O have performed each year, they continue to learn, 
right? It's quite clear they've got an exceptional power to keep gaining an audience and retaining that audience. And so they get a very daily and live sense of risk, their callers tell them. Um, they've got content monitors, they've got producers, they've got teams around them and guardrails to support that production process. So they're more and more informed as each broadcast goes on. And I think over time they've shown far less brand risk, but it's still there. And that's one of the X factors that you speak of, Michael, that you know, from a listener point of view, you don't know what you're going to get. And sometimes even Colin Jackie O might not know what they're going to say, right? They do it through a lot of filters, but they have to be up there almost metaphorically alone on stage performing and entertaining every listener. So sometimes that will be subjectively interpreted really badly. I've worked with them through a couple of those instances and they were really hard and they took them hard too, right? And they had to work hard to get it back. So I think, yes, the risks are there. They've been proven to be more mitigated in time. And I'd love to think too that, you know, when someone commits a mistake, the baying for the sacking of anyone who makes a mistake will stop. It's like surely how people feel about what they've done, do they accept responsibility for it? Is an apology necessary and worthy? Do they do that? I think that has to come into it. I really don't like this atmosphere where if one mistake is made, then you've got to be sacked from your job. I just think that's wrong. So I think Kyle and Jackie O have displayed a, a good ability and sensibility within that and continue to learn over time. Brands are aware of it and they're aware of the risk. And I hope too that the audience and, and media appetite has grown as well. One last question about Kyle and Jackie O, and I, and I know we've spent a lot of time on this, but it's not so often that you get to talk about in a market like Australia uh, that you get to talk about a $200 million talent deal. <laughs> it hasn't happened before. In- indeed. And that's across TV or radio or anything uh, in yeah. Australia. This it's, is... it's a first for this country. If the deal ends up being at that level, it will be a first. Indeed. Now, what about then the impact on the rest of the company. So whoever succeeds in signing them, whether it is ARN or whether something happens and SCA does manage to secure them. Or someone else. Or yeah. somebody else, yes, as discussed, would there be a few concerns elsewhere in the business about costs being cut to offset that? Or is it more a case of the rainmakers now arrive, so it'll be rivers of gold for the next decade? I think the short answer is yes, Michael, there will be concerns. So for whomever they work with, there'll be a mixture of relief and excitement and an appreciation that those costs don't just come out of blank space. They have to come out of somewhere. And so will the potential advertising revenue. So the business model for either company will be different. So importantly for whomever secures their services, I'm sure what we'll see is that they make an announcement about it and that they'll also accompany that with an announcement to staff or communication to staff to say, look, this is how we see this playing out. Okay moving away from Kyle and Jackie O, in a way, it, it, it's kind of running parallel to this. I need to ask you about another story that's unfolded this week, and it involves Ray Hadley at mm. 2GB. Speaking of masters of craft, absolutely. Indeed, and formerly of 4BC in Brisbane, because uh, the story went this week that Ray Hadley's show, which has been networked from Sydney to a wide number of uh, regional stations and also to 4BC in Brisbane for about eight years now, that at the beginning of this week, that ended. 
And now the morning show on 4BC is going to be presented by Bill McDonald, who is a broadcaster and a journalist and a Brisbane local. And Nine released a, a statement announcing the announcing the change and saying that it is essentially part of their live and local strategy. Now, live and local is a very well-established kind of principle of talk radio. Uh, really, the emphasis is, is on local content and ensuring that what you are talking about connects directly with the people who are listening to it. And so it's really kind of suburban issues. It is talking about those kind of grassroots stories and out of that you can kind of build a, a listener base. Ray has done a very good job over the last eight years. And I need to declare that I worked with Ray uh, for quite a long period of time as a producer on, on his show. And, and Adam, you worked with him as well while we were both at Macquarie Media. Hmm. And so uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on this shift away from networking that program into Brisbane when it has been the best performing program on 4BC for a little while and whether we are seeing kind of two networks going in different directions where potentially ARN looking at Kyle and Jackie O and a big play around the brand of Kyle and Jackie O, whereas for Nine Radio, it is a shift back towards live and local, even though they have arguably a very marketable brand in Ray Hadley, who is no longer going to be heard in that market. Yeah, look, this is going to be a very interesting one to play out, won't it? And as you wrote in Umbrella today, Michael, and it's a cracker of an article, so well done. But I would say it remains to be seen how each strategy plays out. Now, both can work, right? The national strategy can work, live and local can work. But as we discussed earlier, the stars are rare and precious, right? So will they build in their new presenter, Bill McDonald, a star? I mean, that remains down to the execution for 4BC locally to see whether that can beat and surpass the very high benchmark that Ray Hadley set. So this will be an amazing one to watch. I would say having worked with Ray for a number of years, we worked together between 2015 and uh, 2019. So I got to appreciate working with him very much. I'd competed against him for many years and it was difficult. He is a formidable competitor. So when you work together, you know how hard he works, right? You know that that show is all important and how much dedication goes through the whole production team into that show. And so when he expanded into Brisbane, he worked so hard. He went up there for one week every month, you know, to really get situated in Brisbane and be there. Uh, He worked in both markets. You know, when daylight saving comes, he had to announce two sets of times and they had to make show adjustments. They worked so hard on giving the Brisbane audience, even from another market, the content that they wanted and it was shown to work. So, you know, arguably the content was always live and Ray made it local to every market that he was in and he was in something like 30-odd markets at different times. So, it was proven that it could be done as a network show. Now it'll be interesting to see how this execution goes for Nine Radio. Yeah. It, look, we have spent a lot of time talking about radio today, but it's not often that you get so many good, interesting radio stories happening outside of survey time. Yeah. I would just say for, for listeners to this podcast, think about it in terms of the written content you read. Do you think about where they're writing it from? The visual content that you watch, do you think about where that's made or what you listen to? How relevant is where the content was made 
or is it just the content that you connect with to be live, local, or the content you want? And that in turn, of course, matters to advertisers. The audience they get, when they get them, where they get them is vital for advertisers too and the branding and the campaigns they want to execute. God, you're good at those summaries. <laughs> I should just just hand over to you. Whenever we're approaching the end of a story or, or the end of the episode, I'll just say, Adam, over to you. I'll come back in a minute and a half to wrap things up. I'll close the show. Oh, thank you. Now, uh now I feel like I don't know where to go because you've done such a good job of wrapping things up. We will take a very quick break and I'll kind of gather my thoughts and we'll come back and go through some other stories from Umbrella this week. All right, Adam, we are each picking a story now that Umbrella has covered this week and bringing it to the studio for discussion. And there's mm. a rule. There's a new rule for this. Okay. It's a simple one. No radio. I think we've well and truly covered radio today. Got it. So you have to pick a non-radio story. Uh, what has grabbed your eye from Umbrella this week? Oh, okay. So Darcy Song's articles, uh, including YouTube reminds us who's boss in video. And that was written last week after Google's YouTube brandcast launch. And that was on last Thursday at Sydney's Horden Pavilion. And so also... This week, we've had TikTok. So two of the digital players who are non-traditional broadcasters have really launched themselves to advertising clients, and they are both showing really just how much disruption is is going on in the video space. Yeah, look, I thought Darcy's article was fantastic. And uh, as she put it, it was a not-so-subtle reminder that YouTube is still the video industry's boss, which is quite remarkable to think that here is a player that's only been around for a couple of decades, essentially, and it is the dominant player here against companies that have been around for a lot, lot longer. Uh, and another one of the, the stats that came out of that article is that YouTube is estimated to earn an annual revenue of $1.5 billion dollars in Australia, which is bigger than, than any other video player, including kind of nine and seven and 10. So it really does just kind of back up that claim that YouTube is the godfather. Yes. So pre-COVID, these stats were not there, right? But what we've seen in the last few years is that transition point where YouTube is the biggest video player commercially, which is a really significant moment, I think. And so at TikTok's For You Summit, last night in Sydney, it was perhaps less of an upfront and more of a demonstration of the power of TikTok for business. Now, Michael, as you know, I've had a try at using this with varying levels of success, but it is a very, very good tool. And so what you have with YouTube and TikTok for business is that fast track from user-generated content to making money from it, to having platforms that buyers can really engage with. And so I think I think those changes where YouTube's become the biggest, TikTok is is really coming up. It's so significant. And really, audiences, clients are winning, right? This competition has proven good. And I would say that there's a really interesting kind of byline to YouTube and TikTok is that most of their content costs them nothing because it's generated by users. That's a right? very good point. So that means their revenue has a very different profit return to the other companies. That gives them a very different commercial model. So between all of the video players, it's the same goal, attracting an audience, offering great advertising solutions and being easy to do business with. They're the goals. 
And this is a very high stakes competition with more and more entrants. Do you remember last week, I believe it was, Adam, we had some data on Mumbrella about dwell times, session times mm. on on the various platforms. And it was really interesting looking at how long people are spending on, say, YouTube and on TikTok. And just from memory, the highest dwell time was about 22 and a half minutes or so. And that was actually YouTube kids. Yes. Uh, and I, I think YouTube... I'm going to just call it adult YouTube, but that sounds like it's got the wrong connotations. Grown-up YouTube was uh, <laughs> about the same. It wasn't that far behind. Then you had TikTok all yep. the way down the other end. It was the shortest period of any, but it was it was around about three minutes or so. It's but so there, fast, TikTok. It, isn't indeed it, it is. And uh, But people are on there in such great numbers. And look, you, you open up the app and the first thing that you get is an ad, a video ad, and you can kind of scroll past it. But more often than not, you are actually engaging with it right from those first couple of seconds. And so when we're talking about three minutes of of time spent on that platform, but really those first two seconds are the most important from an advertiser's perspective, because that is when that ad is in your face. Mm. And so it's, look, I think it's just such a fascinating space to watch. And look, I've dabbled as well in, uh, in TikTok uh, Keta has it a guess as to how many um, followers I am now up to. <laughs> are the numbers plural, Michael? Yes, the numbers are plural. <laughs> Good. It's that's more than me. No, I don't have any. Oh, well, I'm up to thirty-one followers. Thank yes. you very much. Good work. Yep, yep. Michael Thompson, author. Follow me. Join me on Instagram as well. Now, Adam, can I move on briefly now that I've given myself a free plug? Sure. The story that grabbed my attention, it was actually one from today, mm-hmm. and it's got a few people just a little bit riled up, which is always... <laughs> <laughs> it's good to see passion. Oh, yeah. It's great, isn't it? And uh, it's always good to see then the comments section on Mumbrella get to be a little bit, uh, little bit fired up as well. This article was again written by Darcy Song, and it is about something called the F-list. Now, out of context, the F-list sounds very erotic. <laughs> God, no, it doesn't. It doesn't? Not to me. Okay. I, I went to academics, of course, Michael, and where F was the fail, where it's the thing you just don't want to see on your report card. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's where I went too. No, the um, mm. the uh, the F list is a uh, an annual list put out by Comms Declare and Clean Creative. And so it's basically an investigation into advertising companies that have climate polluting partners. So kind of fossil fuel companies and the like. And and so this includes kind of creative media, PR, communications agencies. This year for the first time, it also included outdoor media companies as well. Now, Darcy Song spoke to Belinda Noble, who was the founder of Comms Declare. And Belinda uh, she didn't hold back in her comments, and you wouldn't expect her to based on the, the the nature of this list because it's something that people are very, very passionate about. It's almost like a shame file according to their judgment, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I suppose that's a, that is a good way to look at it because the, the 2023 F list found that more than 90 Australian agencies are believed to currently have fossil fuel-related clients, which is almost double the number from last year. The local agencies that that were kind of identified as being up the top were JSW Research and SEC Newgate. 
they each had seven fossil fuel companies. But really part of this is, and part of the problem that Belinda Noble pointed out is some of the the global holding companies that say WPP, for instance, has uh, the most fossil fuel contracts, as they describe it, with 55, followed by Omnicom with 39 contracts. And so part of what Belinda was saying was that these the global companies are actually holding back almost Australian operations because of those links that are there. Part of, one of the questions then that Darcy put to her was, what can employees do if they disagree with these links and with the companies that they work for having affiliations with fossil fuel businesses? One of the points that Belinda made was that you should go and work for someone with ethics, mm. which I think is is quite extraordinary. Do you think that we would see people changing roles because of their personal beliefs? When did kind of passion and and your your own ethical code become a driving force in where you decide to work? Oh, I could be really glib about that and just saying when the employment market is healthy, all employees, I think, have a greater range of choice. And when it is not, you know, economic circumstances mean that they may not have the same amount of choice. I don't think that's glib. I don't think that's glib. I think that is actually just realistic. Well, yeah, you're right. It's a reality and perhaps not just an economic reality. But, you know, beyond that, I think purpose for any company has become progressively important. Some have had it for a very long time, live it, walk it, breathe it. Others don't. And it really, you know, some companies don't even have a purpose or a, you know, vision, a mission statement, a set of goals or behaviours that they stand for. And so when a company has them and doesn't align with them, that's a problem. So I would say that, you know, companies are taking that risk at a broad level if they're not aligned, if their behaviours and their goals are not aligned with their values. So that that is, a, I guess, a reality too. You know, it's not just an economic reality, but a reality of ethics. And so I think you have to, as a company, walk the talk. Do you think this is now going to become a bigger thing? Because this is obviously an annual thing that Commerce Declare and Clean Creative do. But do you think this is now going to become something that advertising companies are going to be under more pressure over these ESG concerns, so environmental, social and governance uh, concerns, that, that really public pressure or public scrutiny or even internal scrutiny from the people working within the companies are going to start to force businesses to take a particular stand one way or the other? I think that's true, but I think the real fail here is when the values of a company don't align with its actions. So I, I, rather than saying, hey, anyone who works with fossil fuel is in the wrong, which I don't support that position, I think that any company that has a heritage in fossil fuel should have a transition plan, right? That makes economic sense for how they're going to deal with not just the disruption to what has been their history as an industry, but how they're going to evolve, hopefully rapidly, to a, to a different operating model, one with greener energy that complies with all the objectives that have been set out around the world. So uh, if I can just park the fossil fuel part, I think that's important, but I think the only real issue there is that you've got to have a plan for how you're making the transition. And if you as a, an agency or a client are working with that company, 
do you support that plan? And is that important to you? And so I think, you know, whether a company's in fossil fuel or not isn't the fail as such. It's whether their values align with their behaviours. Yeah, and look, I would highly encourage people to go and have a look, have a read of this article on Umbrella, and there's actually a link to the list so that you can check out the F list uh, for yourself. I shouldn't say it like that. It makes it sound like I'm saying a naughty word, doesn't it? Well, it's what they called it. Yeah, I know, so, but there's yeah. there's also the way that you say it. When you lean into the mic a little bit and you go, the F list, it just <laughs> sounds like it's the kind of thing that you're worried like a grown-up's going to overhear you yeah, saying it. it. Yeah, indeed. But go and check that out. It is a fantastic article written by Darcy and some really interesting and very thought-provoking comments from Belinda Noble as part of that. We're running out of time. We are nearly done, Adam. Just a quick mention of another piece that's on Mumbrella. And it really kind of it takes us back to a slightly gentler time. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, it takes us back 90 years ago. Oh, I know what so you're talking about. You would remember this well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Qantas was 13 years old at the time, and Vegemite, which we discussed last week, was about 10 years old. And another Australian icon was just coming into the world, the Australian Women's Weekly magazine, which, would you believe, is 90 years old. What an incredible achievement. It's an amazing achievement, isn't it? In In the last week, which is why this is so incredible, there's been another milestone for the old girl. Old lady, if you don't mind. Yes, be more respectful. Uh, mm. the, the Women's Weekly is going online. Brilliant. Which is is an amazing milestone for a 90-year-old publication. Nicole Byers, who is the, the former editor-in-chief of the magazine, has now moved into the role of general manager lifestyle at R Media. Uh, and as part of that, she's heading up the launch of the uh, Women's Weekly digital platform. She spoke this week to Mumbrella's Nathan Jolly about the process of launching a legacy brand into a digital space and that in its in itself taking a 90 year old brand and putting it online just feels like it's got a whole lot of challenges a whole lot of opportunities as well and it is a fantastic read in addition to the piece michael have a look at the website because i think it's amazing and brilliant that at 90 it's got its first own website so well done How about the Women's Weekly is going to have more TikTok followers than Adam Lang? (laughs) Well, it's not much of a competition against zero. I'm sure they'll win that one, but, geez, maybe I should start one. Have a race. I would love to see that. I would love to see the content that you put out onto TikTok. Spreadsheets. You know what? I was about to laugh, but that might just have a a niche following. And on TikTok, (laughs) a niche can be massive. Anyway, look, I think, hey, that, hey, we just came up with some ideas. Every week, this ends up being a bit of a brainstorming session. I thought we weren't going to get any ideas out of this one, but we kind of busted it out at the last minute. Thank you very much, Adam. Thank you, Michael. This is the Mumbrella cast. Remember to hit follow on the podcast. Head along to mumbrella.com.au as well for more information on pretty much everything that we've talked about today. Thanks very much for your company. See you next time.